Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where every week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons. And I'm Anna Marie Jones. On alternating weeks, we conduct a question and answer episode based on the previous week's podcast. Today, we're talking about the virus of hate that has been afflicting Asians in America. Right. And the ways in which racial stereotypes have created the conditions that contribute to anti-Asian othering and aggression. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, stop now, go back and listen. It'll be helpful to hear those interviews before we start delving into the topics further. And if you have listened to last week's episode, I'm sure that like us, thinking about the blatant racism that is afflicting so many people has really made an impact. I know, Darylise. After re-listening to the episode, I've been thinking about this all week, and I've been extra aware of the coded and overt messages that we're hearing everywhere, like all the stereotyping and, you know, whether that's those stereotypes are said to be positive or negative, it just leads me to the realization that there's so much othering going on. Anna-Marie, can you define othering for our listeners if they're not familiar with that term? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, So it's a sociological term that essentially means treating some individuals as fundamentally different from other individuals. So emphasizing their apartness. Yeah, which I mean, really, if you think about it, that's the beginning of bigotry and racism and hate. Uh huh. And, you know, that's an important lead into my questions for you about the episode. So do you want to get started with that? Oh, yeah, (laughs) let's dive in. All right. Well, I'd like to start with some positive news. On September 17th, the House of Representatives passed the Meng Resolution to disrupt anti-Asian sentiment related to the coronavirus. And it's called the Meng Resolution because it was spearheaded by New York's representative, Grace Meng. And the resolution was passed mainly because of, well, the current U.S. administration relentlessly connecting the name of the virus to where it started. Um, And that just perpetuated such a negative stigma, as you know. Yeah, absolutely. And all the negative epithets given to the virus by the president of the United States and his cronies were not only highly insulting to Asian Americans, but as you reported so well, Darylise, also gave the green light to their constituents to ridicule and attack Asian Americans. I mean, it's just really so staggering. And I think influential people like don't recognize how the words that they say are so important and just really have the power to weaponize um, others, you know? Yeah. I mean, the rhetoric is just so juvenile. It's dangerous. And, but the good thing is the resolution is there to, to monitor the hateful behavior and speech perpetuated by, you know, POTUS and others. And, you know, it's just one thing we have to teach our children to not name call and to treat others with respect, treat others the way we always say, treat others the way that you want to be treated. But to have to do that with our nation's leaders is just so sad. So I know that this is a rhetorical question, but how do we like how do you think we find more room for decency and decorum and not blame people for a virus that they have nothing to do with yeah well first of all i'm so glad that you brought up 
the main resolution and we're absolutely will include a link to uh, Congresswoman Mang's website in the show notes so that people can really like read more about that. But um, I do, I did do a little reading after you were the one that brought this to my attention because I had no idea, but the resolution has 157 co-sponsors and has been endorsed by more than 500 organizations. And, and I think that's like really important is to recognize that yes, there are a lot of people out there perpetrating hate speech, but there's also people who like are deeply invested in writing these wrongs. And so, yeah, I mean, I just want to give like a few bullet points about what the Meng resolution is and what it does. So the, yeah, so I pulled these directly off of, off of the website and I'll just read, read a little bit about it. But um, the Meng resolution calls on all public officials to condemn and denounce any and all anti-Asian sentiment in any form. It recognizes that the health and safety of all Americans, no matter their background, must be of utmost priority. It condemns all manifestations of expressions of racism, xenophobia, discrimination, anti-Asian sentiment, scapegoating, and ethnic or religious intolerance. It calls on federal law enforcement officials working with state and local officials to expeditiously investigate and document all credible reports of hate crimes and incidents and threats against the Asian American community in the United States. To collect data to document the rise of incidents of hate crimes due to COVID-19, to hold the perpetrators of those crimes, incidents, or threats accountable and bring such perpetrators to justice. It recommits United States leadership in building more inclusive, diverse, and tolerant societies to prioritize language, access, and inclusivity in communication practices and to combat misinformation and discrimination that put Asian Americans at risk. So yeah, those are, I think that's so phenomenal that we're, it's sad that there's even a need for that legislation, like that what prompted it is the anti-Asian discrimination and hate crimes that have been happening. But I think that when we look at the level of support that there has been for this bill, like that is a little encouraging to me that at least on the face of it, it would seem that people are recognizing the need to combat this sort of discrimination. And something that really stood out to me about Paul Reese's interview was that they said that the only way to change the heart of racism is to change people's hearts. And I think that's going to take a really, really long time. But I think that in the meantime, what we can do is really make it so that people who do commit hate crimes are held to account for their behavior and their actions and their speech to just make it a safer environment. And so, yeah, I mean, I know that your, your question is rhetorical, like, you know, how do we sort of teach people to be kind? But, you know, I don't know that we can really make people be better in terms of their hearts and, you know, and their thoughts. But I do think that we can incentivize proper behavior and decentivize bigotry and hatred. And that hopefully, like, in time, as a result of that, these things will will recede further and further into the background, you know, as we move towards greater equity. Absolutely. Darn, I thought you were going to have like a solution. I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Like a like a 10 second soundbite that makes people not be racist anymore. Yeah, no. A magical spell. Or 
<laughs> well, sadly, you no, know, yeah. I am happy that there are safeguards in place or, you know, things to quell that hate from administration on down. But, you know, I will say that some of this is encouraging and I've been hearing so many silver linings. Let's get back to your reporting. So like, thank you for, you know, displaying the positives that are going on. For instance, you know, in this episode, I heard a few voices talk about solidarity among Asian and Black communities as being an effective way to combat systemic racism. So would you mind reflecting a little bit more on the importance of that for our listeners? Yeah, certainly. So I think it's so important for people to begin to recognize that oppression hurts everybody. And the more people can really start to see that the interconnectedness of oppressions, the more we can become invested in in working together, whether, you know, it's a person working together for their own community or recognizing that they belong to a larger community and building empathy across these arbitrary identity lines. And I think one of the really horrible things that has afflicted communities of color is this sense of division, right? And I mean, I think that's why we talk about something like the model minority myth and how that's used to really, how that in the past has been used to really separate communities of color. And I think what we're seeing is that people are saying no more, enough to that. And I really loved that in Dr. Keating's interview, she spoke about the hashtag Asians for Black Lives, because it's so essential to recognize that these systems that elevate whiteness and disadvantage everybody else, like it might affect different communities differently, but the aggregate effect is that people of color are all being victimized by these systems. And, uh, and it's important to pull together and really say, you know what, like, no more. Like we don't want to fit within within this system. We want to change the system. And I hope that our listeners can realize and and recognize the importance of being more internationalist in their thinking. Like I love how Don Wyatt brought that up and you know this this need to really see beyond these arbitrary borders. Absolutely. Yeah, I loved talking to uh Han Buikeating She's amazing. Uh, I, I felt very lucky to sit down with her and like get her viewpoint. And some of her stories were heartbreaking and just seemed so silly to me that people would target someone in a supermarket just because they're Asian. And you know, I, it's just it's so mind blowing. But you know what? Han is as sweet as she is, pr- a profound thinker. And she it was almost like she handed me this beautiful gift wrapped in red, white and blue velvet cloth when she said that America is only a prosperous land and melting pot of all ethnicities because of the hard work and sacrifices of enslaved men and women. You know, they they created the ability for other people to be attracted to come to America. So, um, you know, how could Asians not be allies of American of Black Americans. And um, I just felt like that was such a beautiful, patriotic message and gift. It's so interesting to me that you'd put it that way, Anna-Marie, because I wonder what would happen if we could reimagine patriotism, not as a way to endorse one way of being or thinking, you know, or like one way of kind of like being an American, but if patriotism was seen as a way of like embracing diversity and making room for different ways of thinking and just seeing the beauty that various cultures 
have to offer. Like, I wonder, I, I almost feel like we would be more patriotic as a nation if we could love and embrace difference and love and embrace one another. And I know that's probably like pretty, you know, like, I don't know, idealistic thinking. But yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, like as an American, like I've been very disenchanted of late. And I think the more though that I see the beauty that's reflected in various cultures and people and ideologies, like the the more I'm, I'm reminded of the beauty of humanity. Yeah, I, I was taught at a very young age to uh, definitely explore other people's cultures, religions, languages. And I grew up with Sicilian-speaking family on one side and French-speaking family on the other. And it just, I just love that. I'm attracted to different cultures and languages. And I just really believe we can learn from the cultures and languages that surround us. You don't really have to travel to another country here in the U.S., you know. Um, can you shed more light on Ancho's reflection about how being multilingual helped him break through some barriers and um, understand cultures other than his own? Yeah, absolutely. Ancho spoke about that and Don Wyatt and Jonathan Quinard and John Wang, like just so many people in this episode. I think it was so great in that regard to see the importance of of language as a way to reduce and eliminate barriers and, and as a cultural bridge. And it's funny, Anna-Marie, because so I'm a writer and I feel like I should have thought more about language and like how the way that we shape our language has a lot to do with the way that we structure our thoughts. But for me, this episode really illuminated that in just such a different way. And I, I've been thinking a lot about sentence structure, right? And how in different cultures, the verb, like the action word is located in a different place. So one culture might phrase the sentence to say something like Anna Marie is a journalist, whereas another culture might say, you know, a journalist is Anna Marie, or like how we build our language uh, really speaks to our outlook and whether, you know, we are acting on things or whether we're being acted upon, like some language is so active and some language is passive. And, and I think that, that that has a lot to do with how our worldview is shaped. Like, how do we structure our language? How do we structure our thoughts? How do we communicate? And so I think that if a person is exposed to multiple languages, they start to just naturally be exposed to multiple ways of looking at the world and to different modes of thought. And to me, it's so beautiful. And, um, you know, I've never asked you though, do you speak any languages other than English? Well, like I said, I've been exposed to Sicilian. And so I understood Sicilian growing up. I understood a little bit of French growing up. I never was taught to speak it. But in starting in middle school, I took up Spanish and minored it in it minored in Spanish in college, actually, and studied abroad for a semester. Um, but I do wish I had more of a chance to engage in Spanish. Now, you know, I, I live in an area where you don't really have a lot of Spanish speakers. Um, but whenever I get a chance to, when I hear someone speaking in Spanish, I definitely approach them and I practice. <laughs> How about you? Español también, pero yo comprendo más que yo hablo. <laughs> right. So, you know, just to, that that means for any of our listeners that I 
speak Spanish, but I understand more than I speak. And so I'm really, I'm really, really, really out of practice. And it's a big regret of mine that I'm not better at languages, especially after this episode. Yeah. So we'll have to, um, uh, como se dice, quiero uh, practicar mucho junto. Absolutely. Well, stay tuned because later in this season, we do actually have an episode about language that centers on Latinx Americans and Latinx immigration to this country. So yeah, so hopefully our listeners will get a little exposed to that as well. Absolutely. But yeah, but you know, I mean, I think in terms of your question about being multilingual, like I, I do think that language is, is, it's, it's an important way and it's an important entry point, but it's also just one way, right, to like break down those barriers. Thank you for saying that. I just, yeah, it's so important that we just embrace the people around us and reach out and, and let them know you want to learn about them and then they'll be more apt to want to learn about you. Yeah, totally. And it, it's, it's really like, I think reaching out to other people and other communities, like to recognize that you're actually giving yourself a gift, like that the more ex- expanded your worldview can be, uh, the more resources you'll have for critical thinking and connection to people and your capacity to love becomes so strengthened by your willingness to step outside your narrow comfort zone. And so like, I think, I don't know, like to me, that's one of the reasons we're doing the podcast in the way that we're doing it is so that people can really get exposure, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Darlies, I have one last question before we move on to listener questions. So Paul said, as a person of color, that typically they go unnoticed and that's a privilege. Can you explain to listeners what was meant by that? Yeah. So, you know, Paul wrote that on their Facebook page as part of a larger post that they wrote after a very disturbing and potentially dangerous run-in with a police officer. And I think that in writing that, that, you know, that it's a privilege, they also were pointing to the fact that it's really not a privilege at all. And what they were saying is that light-skinned individuals of color are, yes, perhaps less at risk than our darker-skinned counterparts, but the thing is, is that we're all being victimized by the same system and that it's important to recognize that and to take a stand against racism in whatever form that might take, whether it be dangerous and life-threatening or whether it be more subtle and more microaggressive. So I think their point was really that both acknowledging their skin privilege and at the same time saying that racism is detrimental and perhaps deadly to all. So I, I, I thought that that was, for me, like a very impactful way of, of saying it. Well, yeah, thank you for that answer. Um, so I think we're about ready to move on to listener questions. So if you're listening to this and have a reflection or a question, please call us at 844-888-8148 and leave us a message. Or you can send a message through our website at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com. Yeah, Um, I can't wait to hear from you. And you know, Anna Marie, something that I really want podcast listeners to know about is an offer from our Q&A episode sponsor, Vita Supreme. So 
this time in our nation's history, and I know we were talking about this a little bit before we even started recording this episode, but it's such a stressful time. And we're in the midst of a global health crisis. There's really no end in sight for, you know, like when we're going to be able to come out of quarantine. People are stressed. Immunity is low. And I think a lot of us are struggling, whether it be physically, mentally, or emotionally. And so it's so much more important than ever to really prioritize health. And that's where Vita Supreme comes in. They are an incredible company and their mission is to help people look great and feel amazing. And the company, because they really want to make health available to all, they're offering Demystifying Diversity podcast listeners 20% off on all of their products. So Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out and their supplements are so great. I'm on three of them right now. And, um, and they've put together a special Demystifying Diversity podcast listener page where you can get any or all of the supplements that I'm currently taking at vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Or you can go to their website and purchase any of their many products and receive 20% off. All you have to do is just when you go to checkout, enter the coupon code diversity. That's vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity and enter the code diversity for 20% off. Oh, wow. I love that offer, Darylise. And I know, well, you're on those supplements. Rena, our creative assistant, has some and I need to get on. I need to get on the ball. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. You got to get that health game together, Anna Marie. Yes. Yeah. So let's move on to our listener questions. Yeah, so we actually have a general email question that's not specifically related to the episode. So let's start with that one. It's from Maureen in Massachusetts. And Maureen writes, Darylise, what moved you to pursue the subject of, of diversity? And was your personal experience or background a contributing factor? Oh, wow. Thanks so much for that question, Maureen. Yeah, I think uh, in looking back over my life, I'm pretty sure that I was born for this work. Being biracial, you know, I've always thought about issues of diversity and I've spoken about it and explored my feelings. It was, there was just no escaping it. But I didn't really start doing this work as work, like as a career, until after I published I'm Mixed, the children's book that I wrote under the pseudonym Maggie Williams. And after writing that book, I was invited to speak at schools and organizations, and I just found that people really had such a hunger for exploring more expansive understandings of identity. And after that, then I came out, um, you know, first as bisexual in my 20s and then later as sexually fluid. And so I did some journalistic writing about those topics. And, and just in general, in my work as a journalist, I had opportunities to interview people who had been victims of anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, racism, and just so many other painful forms of othering. And, and really, the more that I looked at these issues, I recognized that, that so many of these issues are caused by the same oppression and, and the same sort of like systems that elevate some people and disadvantage others. And so I'd say that for me, it was really started out like as a deeply personal project and like a deeply personal concern. But then I quickly recognized as I got into the field that these issues are so much bigger than me and so much bigger also than the communities that I'm a part of. And that's why, yeah, like I, I think to me, the podcast feels so important because my hope is, is that other people listening will start to have the same experiences that I had, which is of seeing 
perhaps themselves or their stories or the stories of people that they love reflected in some of the episodes, but also that they'll really start to see that, yeah, these topics are very interrelated, but also that we have to really expand the scope of our own experience and find empathy for other people whose stories might be very different than ours. But I I love that question. Yeah, that is a good one and a good answer, Darylise. And now we have a call-in question that I really want to know the answer to. Hi, I have a question. When um, discussing diversity and discrimination, how do we bridge the gap between discrimination and preference without letting our own judgment of right or wrong cloud the discussion? Hope to hear this on a podcast. Thank you. Wow, that's a phenomenal question. And I think that gets really tricky because preference is one thing and discrimination is another. And I I can say that emotionally, I really hope that within myself, I have a solid sense of where to draw that line. But you asked a question. And so now I have to try to explain that. And I think it all comes down to fairness and power and consequences. And so what I mean by that is that if you have a preference, let's say, for a certain type of food, let's start with food, because that's an innocuous example. So, you know, maybe you really love Chinese food or Italian food or Middle Eastern food, you know, and you don't like a different kind of food, like, you know, maybe you don't like hamburgers or something. That's fine, right? Because that's a choice. And that's a preference. And and you can have whatever tastes you have, and you're not hurting anybody. And you're not sort of wielding your preference with a certain level of power to disadvantage someone else or, you know, or forcing other people to adhere to whatever arbitrary preferences you have. So I think with preference, you know, food might be a silly example, but I think it's a good example because you can opt to do what works for you and nobody else is harmed in the process and just a matter of choice. And you're not saying, you know, that people who like hamburgers are are kind of like less good than you because you like Chinese food or you like Middle Eastern food or Italian or, you know, the other examples. So I think with preference, like there is no assignment of morality or superiority. But if we move on to something else and we talk about preference, like if you're a hiring manager, let's say for a job and someone comes in and they belong to a culture or a race or a religion that is not your own personal preference, and you start making hiring decisions based on that, that becomes discrimination, right? And and it's based on the fact that you in some way feel superior and have, um, whether it be either perceived or real, you know, in the case of a hiring decision, it's real power over another human being. And so I think when it comes to these issues, really what you want to be thinking about is who am I hurting? You know, am I hurting anybody? Is this a neutral decision? Is this a decision that is backed by power? I personally will sometimes ask myself the question, like, would I feel comfortable sharing how and why I made this choice? You know, and if I like, if it's a food choice, like, yeah, sure, you know, I'm comfortable sharing that I prefer this to that. But if it's a choice about why I chose to hire someone or why I chose to date someone or, you know, those kinds of things. I think, I think really like you're then confronted with the fact that maybe it is a a choice that's based on discrimination and based on internalized bias. And I also think it's really important too, to think about like where our preferences do come from 
because I know a lot of people, and I think I can probably include myself in this, who were raised to believe certain things or who were given certain messages. And we can sometimes feel like, oh, this is how I think, or this is how I feel. But like, if you really trace it back, it's not actually your preference or your choice. It's just something that you've been conditioned to believe. So I really, I love this question. I think it's a difficult one. But I think if you're questioning whether or not something is a preference versus an act of discrimination, really make sure that, you know, there's no power dynamics at play. um, And sort of think about whether or not it's a question that like, think about whether or not you could stand by and defend your position from a place of equity and inclusion. And if you're, you know, if you're in doubt of your choice, like, definitely look into it. I mean, I think, I think one of the best gifts that we can give ourselves is to question how and why we're making our decisions. Yeah. Oh, something that stood out for me in that question, Darylise, was that of um, right and wrong and how murky things can get if you look at it from that way. Yeah, right. And I think, you know, I think it can be really easy to think that we're right, or to think that someone else is wrong, or to think that things are true when they're not. They're just worldviews. And we've really been indoctrinated to believe certain, certain worldviews. But if we can expand our perspective and expose ourselves to different things, like then we actually do start to have the power to think more objectively and more critically. But, you know, that said, like, I think with all of these things, we're all just just learning and doing our best. Yeah, definitely. Wow. Well, we have another question. Hello. Uh, my name is Urban Pines. I have a question. Um, I haven't seen much discrimination outright in the ways of Chinese citizens, but I'm sure it's there. Do you figure it's more passive or more active? Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you so much for that question. I think based on our research and our reporting, uh, it's definitely both, you know, it's definitely active and it's definitely passive discrimination. And I guess my first thought when thinking about active discrimination would be to think about violence and to think about the statistics that we reported on in this episode that, you know, there were more than 2,100 hate incidents that were documented in the span of a few months. And but in listening to the, that question, I'm I'm just pausing to reflect on the fact that there's so many degrees, I think, of active discrimination. And bear with me because I'm just thinking this through now. But for example, in the episode, we talked about how people stopped frequenting Asian-owned businesses and how so many Chinese restaurants in the United States closed during COVID-19, like disproportionate to other restaurants that closed. And on the face of that, not, not ordering from a specific restaurant or not frequenting a business might seem like a passive form of discrimination, right? Because you're like actually not doing anything. But Um, I guess I would say that in some ways it could also be considered active because you're like actively interfering with someone else's livelihood and with someone else's income. So I think that when we're talking about active versus passive discrimination, there's this line and sometimes it can be difficult to tell where one thing ends and where another begins. And so uh, because I'm a huge nerd and a huge like language lover, 
I actually looked up the definition for active and passive racism. And so what I found is that active racism can be defined as actions which have as their stated or explicit goal, the maintenance of the system of racism and the oppression of those in targeted racial groups. People who participate in active racism advocate the continual subjugation of members of the targeted racial groups and protection of the quote unquote rights of members of the agent group. These goals are often supported by a belief in the inferiority of people of color and the superiority of white people, culture and values. And the same um, publication defines passive racism as beliefs, attitudes, and actions that contribute to the maintenance of racism without openly advocating violence or oppression, the conscious and unconscious maintenance of attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors that support the system of racism, racial prejudice, and racial dominance. And this is something I found in an on- online in a resource from um, Vanderbilt, and we'll include the resource in the show notes. But I think that what what we're looking at with passive racism is that it's more of a system of beliefs and it's not accompanied by action, but it's also really a dangerous precursor to active racism. And I think sometimes we see some things as like passive choices or as not necessarily hurting anyone. Like I know Nikki spoke in the episode about people giving her dirty looks at times or, you know, and that, in some ways might feel different than the woman who in the checkout line, like refused to let her touch her food or John Wang and the person who on the street told him to go back to his country and those kinds of things can seem more active. But I also think these subtle attitudinal things that are categorized as passive, to me, they're they're what lead to the active racism or also to people kind of throwing up their hands and saying like, well, you know, I'm not going to get involved or like, it doesn't really matter, you know? And I think we've seen that a lot in acts of discrimination, like that some people are just passive and they choose to be bystanders. And then it allows these things to continue and to continue. So I think the question was a really good one about like, you know, which are there more of, I think you can't have active racism without passive racism. So I, I would say that passive racism is probably at work in, in all of othering that happens. And then active racism kind of comes out of that. But we we have to deal with the active racism, because that's what we can see. And that's what's on the surface. But I think until passive racism becomes a thing of the past or like really subsides considerably, we're not ever going to eradicate discrimination and aggression. Yeah. And passive racism is so much harder to detect. It's, it, it goes hand in hand with the microaggressions that we often talk about. So that's harder to detect. It's like the, it's like the active racism is the low hanging fruit and that's what we can tackle because we can see it. It's more tangible. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it can't, but like so many more people are, are kind of like, are operating with these hidden biases. But I think that it's me, like, I think those are the people that can kind of like be willing to do the work, right. Is people who acknowledge that active racism is dangerous. Like, I think we're the ones that can say like, okay, well, let's work on the passive racism within ourselves. Because I kind of think that once someone is 
to the point where they're actively discriminating against other people and they don't see anything wrong with that. I don't know that those people are necessarily like that reachable by that point. Right. So you're saying that the passive racism, people who kind of don't pay attention or they don't engage in it because they're not engaging in helping others or becoming an ally, maybe because they have fear and they don't want to get involved because of fear. Maybe if they can start just by listening to, you know, it doesn't have to be our podcast necessarily. There's so many great tools out there, podcasts, things that they can read. They can they can become active just um, by engaging from a safe place. You know, like like here I am in my closet. <laughs> <laughs> we should probably explain that, Anna Marie. That yeah, when when podcasting like it helps with sound levels if you if you go into a small small space. So yeah. That's- and surround up a lot of clothing, obviously, in the closet, and it dampens the sound so that we have a better sound quality while we're recording. So I'm literally, literally in the closet. Love it, love it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we do have one more question. My name is Jake. I live in New Jersey. Um, I, I live and work in an area that's uh, very uh, highly populated uh, with Asian Americans, specifically Chinese, and uh you know, I noticed that like a lot of their businesses are taking a toll and I just can't, I can't uh, imagine that this isn't happening around the country too with uh, the current climate we live in and uh, who's, who's in power right now. So uh, just uh, if you guys could, uh, I'm not sure if you guys can elaborate or more, but this, I, I just have a feeling that uh, Asian American business, specifically Chinese, are definitely taking a toll during these times. Thank you guys. Have a good one. Hi, Jake. Yeah, thank you for that question. So we reported on this a little bit in the episode in terms of the report issued by J.P. Morgan Chase Institute, which said that in April, Asian business owners reported that their cash balances were down by 22%, I believe, and that their revenue had been reduced by over 60%. And then I know we also cited another study that showed that about half of the Chinese restaurants in the United States had closed because of COVID-19. And, you know, in the interview that I did with Dave Q from the Asian Arts Initiative, he spoke to that a little bit more. But this question, after you asked it, I realized that when we recorded this episode, we recorded it a little while ago. And so there's been more research that's come out and more data. And so I did a little bit of digging and I found a UCLA report released in July using employment and labor data for California and New York. So this is more based in cities and might not apply to everywhere in the United States. But according to this UCLA report, it showed that between March and May of this year, 2020, there was a significant difference in employment and joblessness between Asian Americans and whites compared with the period before the pandemic. So before the pandemic, the rates were approximately identical for unemployment between Asian Americans and whites. But by May 2020, researchers found that the unemployment rate for Asians was 15% and the jobless rate was 21% compared with a 12% unemployment rate for whites and 16% jobless rate for whites. But before the pandemic, the percentages were about equal. So it's really clear that from an employment standpoint, the pandemic has had a profound effect on disadvantaged Asian Americans. But your question was specifically about businesses. And so in terms of business closures during the pandemic, the same authors estimate that 
233,000 Asian American small businesses closed between February and April. So that's a huge number. And it represents a decline of about 28% over a two month period. So that's like insane, (laughs) those numbers. And over the same period, there was a decline of about 17% in non-Hispanic white small businesses that closed over the same period. So like, that's a significant difference. And I think that when we're talking about these things, statistics really kind of demonstrates what anecdotal evidence and, and observational evidence is already telling us. And so we really want to look at how to promote greater equity and how to invest in communities that have been hit hardest by the pandemic. And those communities are overwhelmingly minority communities and especially Asian communities have really been hit hard by the pandemic, not only because of the economic issues that are afflicting all people during this time, but also because of the very active discrimination that underlies a lot of the policies and a lot of people's attitudes towards Asian Americans in this time when the rhetoric has been so just really vile towards Asian Americans. And so I would say that Right now, it's really important as individuals to start thinking about how we can invest in minority-owned businesses and how we can combat racism and xenophobia. But I'm kind of going to pull it back to the very beginning of the episode and and say that this is why also legislation is so important, because hopefully on a larger scale and on a government level, there are being actions that are being taken that will help to right some of these wrongs that have been, that have been done. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm going to go back to the end of the episode and say shop small, but shop ethnic too. (laughs) Go out and get that Asian food and that yummy uh, Middle Eastern food and, you know, let's support local businesses for sure. Well, Darylise, before we say goodbye, let's make sure that we do our Demystifying Diversity t-shirt giveaway. During each Q&A episode, we select a name at random from all the subscribers to our newsletter and all the callers and people who emailed us with questions. And this week, the name we picked is Cecilia Schroyer. Yay! Yeah, I know. Awesome, right? Yay! Cecilia is one of our mailing list subscribers, actually. And we'll be contacting Cecilia to arrange to send her a free t-shirt as a thank you for being a Demystifying Diversity podcast listener. And if you want to become eligible to win a t-shirt, you can subscribe to our email list at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com or call in or email with a question. Congratulations, Cecilia. Thank you so much for being a listener. Um, um, And thank you to everyone who's listening for joining us in this question and answer episode. Yes, each episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by Darylise Lyons. Yeah, with the invaluable assistance of Anna Marie Jones, reporter, producer, and co-collaborator, Paul Kondo, assistant, producer, and editor, Raina Epstein, creative assistant, Sunny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator, Zach James, marketing manager, and Monica Lynn, graphic designer. Our Q&A episode song is Locale by Speakeasy with permission from Blue Dot Studios. And if you haven't already, Please subscribe, and if you'd like to join in on the conversation, visit DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com or call 844-888-2222.
888-888-8148 and leave us a message. And if you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, please pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity by Darylise Lyons. Thank you again to everyone for listening. Join us next week for our next episode, Muslims and Media, an exploration of how biased depictions contribute to Islamophobia in America. And in the meantime, let's practice empathy and work together to create a more inclusive world.